Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, is where we find ourselves this morning. We've been working our way through Mark's Gospel, and we have arrived at chapter 7. It's 16 chapters long, so we're almost halfway there. And um, it, the pace picks up a bit once we get to turn the corner of chapter 8, but chapter 7, beginning in verses, we're, we'll consider verses 1 through 23 this morning, is really a critical uh, hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. The mission to the Jews is coming to a conclusion, and then Jesus will pick up the mission to the Gentiles. So the mission to the Jews in the Gospel of Mark is, is coming to a close, and it comes to a close with the scribes and the Pharisees making a return. So would you open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, and hear now the word of God from verses 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that means Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, excuse me, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it, is, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, verse 21, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, 
slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Would you bow with me? God, help us this morning to be reminded of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus came not to make us look good on the outside, but to purify our hearts. God, we pray that you would help us to be pure in the place that matters, to be pure in heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' mission into Jewish territory is concluding on a high note. He's fed 5,000 men and their families. He's walked on water and he's declared that he is I am in the middle of the storm. He's reaching people. His popularity is growing. And right on cue, the scribes and Pharisees return. We haven't seen them since chapter 3 when the Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And the scribes accused him of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. Once again... Mark tells us the Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem. He wants us to know they've come from the religious city, from the place where all the super holy people are. They've not come to learn from Jesus, though, only to question Him. And they ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? You see, when Jesus' work, when Jesus begins to get people at the heart, when His work cuts through appearances and traditions and leads people to follow Christ and pursue His mission from the heart, people who have had control through the appearance of purity outwardly and the enforcement of human traditions, they emerge to question the work of Christ. It still happens in the church today. This is why Paul warns in Timothy, of those who hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They look the part, they put on the tie, they put on the suit, but all they're doing is constantly evaluating and critiquing others and never looking at what God has done within themselves. This passage stands like a lighthouse on the shoreline of human pride, and it points us back to what we really need, church. We need a heart that is able to receive and enjoy the nourishment that can only come from Christ, our daily bread. And to possess the purity that Christ desires for us. To possess the purity that pleases God. There's three things we find in this text. First, we must not be deceived by the appearance of godliness. Satan's a liar, church. He's a deceiver. He's a pretender. He can look the part. Secondly, we must not use human traditions to avoid our responsibility to do what God has said. And finally, we must be pure in heart. First, we must not be deceived by the appearance of godliness. We see that in verses 1-7. through seven. The Pharisees are concerned about Jesus' disciples eating bread with what they call impure hands. For the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews washing was not about personal hygiene, but about moral purity. This was not like you're telling your kids to wash your hands because you don't want to get a bacteria. It was, it was a ritual by which they thought they were presenting themselves as pure to God. The word impure here 
is the same word that is later translated defiled in verses 15, 18, 20, and 23. Before they ate, the Pharisees and all the Jews would carefully wash their hands, we learned in verse 3, because they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to be common. They wanted to be set apart as holy to God. Of course, the problem is that regulation is nowhere found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament only commanded priests to wash themselves before entering the tabernacle, but religious leaders had added their requirements along the way. God gave the law to expose our sinful hearts and our need for a Savior, but these additional traditions and requirements of the elders had become an elaborate system of self-righteousness. Look how clean I am. Look how pure I am. Look how well I washed my hands. In verse 3, it says uh, in my translation that they carefully washed their hands. We're not exactly sure what the original Greek is trying to say, but it says they washed their fist. And I don't know, nobody's entirely sure what in the world they're trying to say, but my vision of that is my kids when I... Did you have to go through teaching your kids or grandkids how to wash their hands? Isn't that the most unnerving thing? They like splash a little water on there like, I'm good. I'm like, nope. Say your ABCs while you wash your hands. Okay, Dad. And then they just do the one side. I'm like, no, you got to get in between the fingers. you got to get on the back side, a little bit of this. So I don't know what it means that they wash their fists, but they were making sure that hand was really clean. But you see, what began as a sincere act of devotion to God became a grand deception. As scribes and Pharisees settled for a purity that they believed that they could achieve through their outward acts rather than the purity that God requires, which the Old Testament is trying to show us, can only come through faith in the promised Son of God. The Jews had given to their traditions a power that is reserved to God alone. Mark proves this, by the way, by using religious language to describe their purity rituals. They will not eat unless they cleanse, verse 4, themselves. Literally, the word for cleanse there is sprinkle. They, that which is a religious term. They, they would sprinkle themselves before they would eat. And secondly, they would not use cups or pitchers or copper pots unless they were, it says washed in the translation, but the word is literally baptized. So they were baptizing the things they ate out of, they were sprinkling themselves, and it had become this grand religious outward appearance of holiness, neglecting the, all the while the fact that they had impure hearts. You see, their confidence in purity through outward ritual leads them to ask Jesus about His disciples. And there are two indications of legalism or traditionalism in our hearts that the Bible exposes here. The first is this, a tendency to compare ourselves to others or to criticize others using something other than Scripture as the basis of our comparison. Evidence of legalism in our hearts is a tendency to compare ourselves with others or criticize others, especially when we use something other than Scripture as the basis of our comparison. When we notice what others are doing or not doing, more than we notice what God has done for us, we are usually missing it. The righteousness that comes by comparison, church, is not the righteousness we need. We must have the righteousness which is beyond compare. We must have the righteousness which belongs to God alone, which means we must have the righteousness that God gives, not that we can earn. We must have the righteousness that God gives, which leads us to make much of Jesus rather than making much 
of ourselves. But you see, the human heart runs toward what we can see and what we can measure. Because we can always find someone who's doing worse than we are. Have you noticed that? You want to make yourself feel good rather than run to the fact that you've been accepted and adopted in Christ Jesus? Just look around and find somebody else worse than you. Or look around and find something to complain about or gripe about or nitpick about. It makes us feel good about ourselves and how much better we are doing or would do than someone else. And guess what? Jesus says it's also a cover-up. It's a cover for a heart that Jesus says is far away, verse 6, from God. A great distance is what the word means. It's a heart that is a great distance from God. You see, Jesus has no interest in the tradition of the elders. The word of God will do. And so he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13 to say that the scribes and the Pharisees are the very hypocrites that Isaiah is talking about. Hypocrite means to play the part, to act without sincerity, to pretend to walk with God, but to really only be walking in a routine. They were walking in accordance with the tradition of the elders. And all of this is masking the condition of of their hearts. Spiritual hypocrisy comes when we embrace a false basis of purity, which leads leads us to have an inflated view of ourselves. The great danger, church, is that we would spend our lives going through a religious routine, coming to church, singing the songs, doing the things, giving the tithes and the offerings and everything that's outward and yet missing out on what God has really made us for, which is worship. It does not honor Christ if we function in a land of make-believe, putting on our religious makeup. Going through the motions and then crashing in a puddle of dissatisfied goo because we have accepted a phony substitute for feasting on and delighting in Christ our bread. Jesus says in verse 7, in vain do they worship me. Vain worship is worship that God neither welcomes nor receives. Is God receiving your worship this morning? Jesus sees right through the scribes and the Pharisees. And He sees right through us as well, church. He knows if we have substituted what people wear, our service, our titles, our positions, the number of years that we've attended, the amount of money we've given, the time that we've invested in worship, the number of times we've been to the building, or any other standard that we tend to substitute that does not come from God's Word for the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. He knows it. Sanctification comes, church, when we behold and are filled and overcome by the glory of God in Christ. That is the place of worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him, not in his self-righteousness. Church, we must not be deceived by the appearance of godliness. We must rather feast with Jesus and delight in Him. But secondly, we must not use human traditions to avoid our responsibility to do what God has said. We've seen in Mark that Jesus was often teaching. And we can understand why, right? Because the Jews had been teaching poorly for generations. And so Jesus comes teaching all the time to counteract poor instruction. The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 7, 
are teaching a different message based on a different source of authority. They teach as the precepts, they teach as doctrine, in other words, as right theology, what men have said. And they don't stop there, by the way. That's just step one. After they teach it, then they also neglect, verse 8, the commandment of God in order to hold the tradition of men. Do you see what's going on here? You can't hold the tradition of men and the Word of God at the same time. You've got to let one go in order to hold one tightly. And what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews are doing is they're throwing away. The word neglect literally means to send away. They're sending away the commandment of God in order to grab a tight hold of the stuff that their elders and their traditions and their men are their. Elders and fathers have dictated. Churches are doing this all across our great land. They are are so wrapped up in their history and their identity and who we were and what we've done and what we've always done and what we'll always be and they are neglecting the first things. They're neglecting the great commission to go make disciples no matter what it costs us. They're neglecting repentance and faith and forgiveness and love. And they are consumed by, well, this is who we are and what we do. You cannot hold on to the commission of God to reach a lost and broken and dying world at the same time of holding on to your identity and your past that's grounded in something that is not based in God's Word. It's impossible. I know it's warm, but are you all here this morning? Because I'm just getting warmed up. The Pharisees think that they are experts in righteousness and pleasing God. But do you see what Jesus says in verse 9? They're actually experts in setting aside God's commands. Whoa! Come down from Jerusalem and God says, you think you're an expert. I'll tell you what you're an expert in. You're an expert in setting aside the Word of God. And the word set aside means to reject So you're letting go of the command of God in order to cling to your traditions and you are rejecting God's commands in favor of your humanly contrived traditions. Church, it's not your pastor, it's not a professor, it's not a reformer who first said that scripture and tradition will conflict and that our hearts will want to leave behind the Bible to maintain our traditions. It's Jesus who said that. And Jesus is still saying that to the church today. Healthy churches continually evaluate and refine what they do, not based on what is trending on Facebook or on Twitter, but based upon what God Himself has said. That is our standard for continual reformation until Christ returns. Jesus illustrates this point by using the example of what is called Corban. It's a Hebrew word that means offering. And this is a little bit tricky, so I'm going to try to explain it uh, with the help of James Edwards, he says this about Corbin. In the case of Corbin, a person could dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them himself. In the example of verse 11, a son would declare his property Corbin, or an offering devoted to God, which at death would pass into the possession of the temple. In the meantime, however... The son retains control over the property and his control deprives his parents of support that otherwise would have been derived from their property in old age. In other words, 
It's the appearance of godliness, but depriving his parents in the process in order to release himself of responsibility. Manson summarizes it this way. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not so he can give it to God, but so that he can prevent someone else from having it. And then, to make matters worse, the priests... If, if someone did this in good faith and then realized that they were harming their parents and said, I want to take that vow back, the priest said, well, we won't let you do that unless you charge an exorbitant fee of 30, 50, or 90%. The entire system masked a selfish lack of concern for parents and greed on the part of the religious class all under the cover of appearing to be generous and holy but not really being generous or holy at all. They appeared to be super holy religious people, but they were far from God, breaking the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother and breaking the first commandment by putting their comfort and their appearance of holiness before the worship of God Himself. Did you know that's what happens when we put what we say before what God has said? Do you see that in verse 11? In verse 11, Jesus says, But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin. When we we put what we say ahead of what God has said, we get in trouble. There's been a Facebook trend over the last week. I don't know if you've got caught up in it or not. But the question is, is someone saying Laurel or Yanny? Have y'all, anybody? No? That's going to be a second service illustration. Um, there's a word, and, and the word is laurel, but some people listen to it, and it sounds like yanny, and I have no idea why, and it's, it's all over the country right now, and people are debating, well, which word is it? Is it laurel? Is it yanny? And then there's a, one of a dress that's either black and blue, or it's white and gold, and, and the question is, well, who cares? Well, it doesn't really matter, right? At the end of the day, we're, we're spending all this time talking about something that doesn't matter, but it does matter. What God has said versus what we have said. And we better make sure that we are anchoring our lives and our church in what God has said. Because when we don't, we end up worshiping not God, but ourselves. Trying to impress one another. Substituting obedience to our demands for the commands of God. And when we do this, look at verse 13. We invalidate the word of God. Now, it doesn't mean the Word of God is wrong. What it means is that we invalidate its effect in our lives. As Clark writes, those who refuse to acknowledge the Bible's authority will not experience spiritual transformation by the Spirit and through the Word. Do we want people to experience spiritual transformation? That's why I'm here this morning. That's why I preach the gospel. I want people to experience the life-changing, heartwarming transformation that only God can give. But if we leave the Word of God, then we've stripped away any opportunity we have for people to enjoy what God does when His Word is declared as truth and it is honored in our lives. When we elevate tradition over God's truth, the power and purpose of God's Word become inoperative in our lives. It's not enough to carry the Bible. It's not enough to study the Bible. It's not enough even to preach the Bible. We must be a people who are fully surrendered to Christ and the idea that we want to obey the Bible. As Warren Wiersbe writes, that means we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. 
It does us good to examine our church traditions in light of God's Word and to be courageous enough to make changes. Jesus, not the tradition of the Uh, The tradition of men declares what is pleasing to God. And as we see in verses 14 through 23, what Jesus says is purity cannot come from the outside. It must come from within. In order to have the purity that pleases God, not only must we make sure that our priority is God's word and following it, no matter what it costs us, no matter what we must change, We must allow the Word of God to drive us to the reality that we need a purity that we cannot produce. It must come from God because it must be on the inside. In Jeremiah 17, 9, one of my uh, most convicting passages of Scripture that I've committed to memory, the prophet says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand? It's desperately sick. But you know, we settle for purity on the outside, don't we? In 1992, my father was working on his Doctor of Ministry degree in Fort Worth, Texas at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And back at the time, they had a residential requirement. We had to be there for three months, and so he decided to do that in the summer so he could take the whole family and not be away while we were during school. And so we went down there to Fort Worth, Texas for a summer. And Fort Worth, Texas in the summer is a lot hotter than it is here this morning, I promise you. And... The, the apartment on the outside was nice. I mean, it, was, it had been freshly painted, and it, 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 was, it, was, it was student housing, okay? I mean, it was not high-class, high-fluid and stuff, but it was, it was functional. It, and I thought, well, this is a pretty nice place. And so we stayed there a few nights, and um, somebody said, well, have you, uh, have you made any friends in your apartment yet? And I was 12 years old, and I had no idea what they were getting at. And they said, you know, cockroaches. And, I, and, and my mom froze, and my dad froze. Ah, we're fine. No, we haven't seen anything. Well, that very night, I went home, and I climbed in my little twin bed in my little bedroom, and I turned back the mattress, and there was a giant cockroach right there in the middle of the bed. Now you say, why do why you bring that up? Because the apartment appeared to be relatively clean and pure. But the moment I saw a cockroach laying in the middle of my sheets, it, it was paralyzing. It was, it was gross. I didn't want to be there. And what Jesus is saying to us is no matter what you've got on the outside of your life, the condition of your heart is what counts. What's on the inside. The purity that Christ has come to produce in us is a below-the-surface purity. It can't come by washing our hands. It can only come by the redemption of our sins. It can't come by baptizing our saucers and our cups, but only by His regeneration of our hearts through faith in Christ and His work on our behalf. And if He is doing His saving work in us, it will produce the fruit that God seeks. What is the fruit that God seeks? Continual repentance and love and faith and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, Galatians 5.22. As our faith grows, our acceptance of God's acceptance of us in Christ grows. And as we realize that we've been accepted not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done for us, we grow in our freedom to obey from hearts that are filled with gratitude for Christ's amazing grace. 
You can't worship God unless you're grateful for what God has done for you. As DeYoung writes, our, on the last day, God will not acquit us because our good works were good enough, but He will look for evidence that our good confession was not phony. It's in this sense that we must be holy. And here's the challenge for the Pharisees and for us. Nothing that we do and nothing that we eat or drink can remove the impurity of our hearts. Our impure, defiled hearts would much rather fake holiness than fully rely on Jesus. But only God can take us from defilement to delight in the things that please God because only God can reach into our hearts and transform them. This means that we must abandon all of our pride and all of our appearances of righteousness. We must not settle for self-righteousness and self-justification. DeYoung says this in his book called The Hole in Our Holiness. It is all too easy to turn the fight of faith into sanctification by checklist. Take care of a few bad habits, develop a couple of good ones, and you're set. But a moral checklist does not take into consideration the idols in our hearts. So you end up feeling good at sanctification because you stayed away from drugs, you lost weight, you served at the soup kitchen, and you renounced styrofoam. I love that. But you've ignored gentleness and humility. Joy and sexual purity. In verse 21, Jesus says, It is what comes out of our hearts that defiles us. Bacon or no bacon. Gluten-free or gluten-saturated. Big Mac or big salad. The question that Jesus asks is this, What can you do about what naturally comes from your heart? And the answer is you can do nothing but surrender your life to the one who gave his life in your place. You must receive a new heart. For that to happen, verse 14, we must listen to him and we must hear him, verse 16, and we must agree with God that inside of us, the only thing that's there are evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adultery. You say, well, I'm not a murderer. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you've hated anyone, then you're a murderer. You say, I'm not an adulterer. Jesus says, if you've ever looked at someone with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. These are the things that proceed from our sin-warped hearts. And our response to the impurity of our hearts must not be like the Pharisees. It must not be to deny it. It must not be to press it down or cover it up. Christ did not come to give us a bunch of ways to paper over the depravity of our hearts. He came to give us pure hearts. And how does He do that? We run to Jesus in repentance. And we trust that He forgives and He heals and He purifies. To be set apart as a true worshiper of God does not come through pretending. It only comes through Christ's purifying power at work in our hearts. So church, how should we respond this morning to what Christ has said about the place of purity and the condition of our hearts? The invitation this morning as we stand and sing in just a minute is this. Let's not be like the scribes and the Pharisees and evaluate everyone else, but let's begin by taking a good look at ourselves. Let's be honest with ourselves and with God and be pure in the place that counts. Let's be pure in heart. And the only way we can be pure in heart 
is through a right union with the Lord Jesus Christ, who said to us in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Would you bow with me? God in heaven, we thank you for this reminder that it is not of works that I have done, but it is through the atoning sacrifice of Christ our King that we have any hope of life and life everlasting. And what a hope it is. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us not to cling to the traditions of men and to throw away the command of God, but that, God, we would anchor our lives, everything we say and do and think, our very mission for life and reason for breathing, that it would flow and emanate from the Word of God. God, we want to be pure in heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we stand and sing. If you'd like to be a part of a church that believes that Christ is enough, you can stand. It's okay. Stand up. If you want to be a part of a church that recognizes our only hope is that Christ takes a dead sinner and makes him alive and cleans his heart, we'd invite you to come and join North Roanoke Baptist Church. If, you, if you've been pretending your whole life, you might have been on cradle roll, but you've never actually given your life to Jesus. Don't go another day faking it. Walk out in the power of a changed life. Walk out in the power of God. Let's sing together.